It's uh, always an honor to uh, preach, to bring you the word. I'm John Sackett. I'm a fellow teaching elder uh, in the PCA, and I'm also an Air Force chaplain stationed at Vance. Uh, and so this fall, we pitch our fourth child to OSU. So uh, we're real fans now, real, real fans. Yeah, absolutely. So, and I also just want to give a thanks and a shout out to, to Doug for putting together uh, an amazing bulletin, really, that matches with a theme of what I'm preaching about. He asked for a, a text, uh, a title, and a quote. But if you've paid attention, you know that you've already sung about mercy, and you've prayed about mercy. And by God's grace, you'll hear a sermon preached about mercy. This is from the Beatitudes. I've had a chance to preach a couple sermons prior to you all on the Beatitudes, and so I'm just kind of working through this uh, sermon series and I'll, I'll speak to that more as we actually move into the text itself. But again, it's a real joy to be here. I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 5. Uh, I'm going to read the first 12 verses uh, for you. This is the word of God. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets." who were before you. Would you pray with me? Father, as my words are true to your word, may they be taken to heart. But if my words should stray from your word, may they be quickly forgotten. I pray this in the name and in the power of Jesus Christ. Amen. When was the last time you were wronged by someone? It could have been as recent as five minutes ago, uh, or 15 years. It could have been as simple as a, a rolling of the eyes or a rude comment or as complex as a broken promise from someone you loved. How did you feel? What was in your heart? That's the focus of this beatitude uh, this day. But as we move into it, it's, it's a good opportunity to state that the beatitudes are not randomly strung together by our Lord. They're not merely a collection of wise sayings. Let me remind you again of how they build on one another. If you look at the Beatitudes, the first is blessed are those, or blessed are the poor in spirit. To be poor in spirit, to recognize that spiritually speaking, we are bankrupt, we've got nothing to bring, we are worse than empty. And as we see that spiritual brokenness 
we begin to mourn over the sin in our lives. The Spirit gives us that vision, and we begin to weep over the sin in our lives. And that humble realization works in us a meekness, which Christ tells us will ultimately inherit the kingdom. Because we've seen ourselves, we've seen our need, and seeing that need, we begin to hunger and thirst for the righteousness of Christ. And blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who's this sermon, follows his uh, basic outline. He tells us that those first Beatitudes speak to our needs. These second, these uh, second beatitudes that come after that hinge of hungering and thirsting for righteousness. These speak more to our attitude or our disposition as Christians. But honestly, one of the things that I found so di- difficult about studying the beatitudes is how searching they are. David asks for the Lord to search him and to try him and to see if there be any wicked way in him. But if you're like me, I'd rather spend a little time first in straightening up my own life, cleaning out the closets, if you will, before I invite the Lord to look. Yet honestly, if we find that we're uncomfortable with this kind of invitation for introspection, we ought to ask ourselves why. What in ourselves rejects the humiliation of this look into our lives? These Beatitudes are also difficult to study because they show that the Christian gospel is about being, being a child of God, being a son or a daughter of God, and not really about doing. When I was in clinical pastoral education, the Air Force gave me a year to study uh, aspects of trauma and pastoral care there. And one of the things that I uh, got to do is I was a trauma chaplain at a hospital in Cheyenne, and I worked the emergency room every Thursday. Uh, and then also, a couple days in the week, I would visit on different floors. I was able to interact with a lot of people in times of great need for them and great distress for their family. And I would go into a room, and I would see all this distress, and I would think, how can I relieve your pain? Do you need water? Are there places for the family to sit? Can I adjust the blinds to take the sun out of your eyes? Can I make you more comfortable? And a part of this training is once a week we would sit down with all the other residents and we would talk about these experiences. And as I shared kind of like that, I'm not really sure exactly what to do. It's awkward. One of the mentors reminded me, you're a human being not a human doing. That's a clever play on words, and at the time, you know, I probably rolled my eyes. But I've thought about that a lot. I thought about that a little bit later on when I was visiting uh, a, uh, a patient in the ICU that I found out was a veteran that was, had uh, suffered from severe PTSD. And that's why they called me, because I was there to learn how to provide pastoral care. But he was intubated and really couldn't speak and in really bad shape. And there was nothing for me to do, so I just sat at his bedside and I held his hand for 20 minutes. And I didn't do anything. And so in my mind, it was a little bit of a failure, and I was trying to figure out how to log this as a significant visit. 
Um, but then as I left, you would have thought by looking at all the staff in the ICU that I'd saved his life. They were so grateful to me. Now, I know preachers aren't supposed to be the heroes of their own story, but remember that I told you I did nothing. I just was there. Christianity is more about being. Being a daughter of the king. Being a son of the king. Being adopted and living like your children of the king. It's about attitude than action. This is true because of the reality, and I I should say the humbling reality, that Christianity is not something we can control. Shane alluded to that in his comments earlier in the service. Rather, Christianity is something outside of us. The Holy Spirit indwells in our lives and controls us. If we are truly Christians, it's the operation of the Holy Spirit in our life that changes us, that convicts us of sin when we have need for that, that comforts us, that raises us up and tears us down and leads us into all truth. You can see it in the Beatitudes. It's the Holy Spirit that helps us realize in the first place we're poor in spirit, that gives us tears to weep, that creates in us a hunger. And surely this realization, we begin to realize that this is not a veneer. This isn't a plastic front. This isn't shiny paint over a corrupt life. That's not Christianity. It's not the gospel. The gospel is that Christ takes us broken and needy and loves us. Blessed are the merciful. The New Testament tells us that in Christ we are new creature. The old has passed away. Behold, new things have come. And Paul elsewhere also writes, I live, yet not I, but Christ in me. The result of this is that really as we grow in Christ, we begin to realize that all activities, all thoughts, all actions, all goals, aspirations, dreams, and doings are governed by this new nature. Well, the particular question that we should allow ourselves to be searched on this morning is, am I, are you, are we merciful? Well, again, following Jones's outline, first he likes to tell us what it doesn't mean. To be merciful doesn't mean that you're easy with sin, that you've got this happy-go-lucky, whatever approach to life. Also, this beatitude It doesn't only apply to certain temperaments. All of these beatitudes are conditions of the heart and not just speaking about personality traits. You need to remember that whatever you decide or whatever you realize is true about this characteristic characteristic of being merciful must faithfully represent God here. We can't impose our opinions on him. God is merciful but he's also holy, and he's also just, and he's also righteous. And so that means that being merciful doesn't mean that there's no discipline. God has clearly shown us that he loves discipline, and rather he disciplines those whom he loves. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5 and 6 says this, Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one 
he loves and chastise every son he receives. You can read a similar passage in uh, Revelation chapter 3, verse 19, that says this, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Psalm 94, verse 12. Psalm 119, verse 67 and 75. These are just a few of the passages that speak to the reality that God disciplines those whom he loves. So there's implications for us here as well in the church. There needs to be discipline in the church. And it starts in one sense here from the pulpit where your pastor teaches rightly the word. And sometimes you should feel that that cuts into your life. But it also affects us as brothers and sisters in Christ. We, those of us who claim to love the Lord and to be loved by the Lord, who desire to be conformed into his image, we have a responsibility to one another to lovingly engage in difficult conversations and say, brother or sister, this thing that you're doing, I'm not sure how it glorifies the Lord. And I'm only speaking to you because I love you and I know you love the Lord. Can I pray for you on this? Is this something you're struggling with? But that's a hard conversation to have. But if the Lord disciplines those whom he loves, ought we not to discipline those whom we love as appropriate? That's just one way. Matthew 18 gives us the fuller outline. It's a charge to us as parents as well. We've all seen parents who parent badly, right? You know, they're in the store and their kids are doing something that they shouldn't be doing and the parent says something like, stop that, or I'll tell you to stop it again, even louder. And on and on it goes. We've got a similar tendency. It just looks a little differently in our own lives. But the point is that's not discipline and it's not mercy. It's just avoiding parenting. And that's not what it means to be merciful. God disciplines those whom he loves, and he's a merciful God. It's a challenge to us in the church to handle the discipline we receive from right preaching and to encourage those conversations in the lives of each other and his parents. So having looked at what it doesn't mean to be merciful, what does it mean to be merciful? And perhaps it might be helpful to talk for just a moment about the distinction between grace and mercy. Uh, you've probably heard it said, and I think it's a pretty good general definition, that grace is getting something we don't deserve, like forgiveness. And mercy is not getting something we do deserve like not getting pulled over by the cop in the medium on Highway 50 as I was coming to church. That's mercy. Lloyd-Jones says, Grace is especially associated with men in their sin. Forgiveness is a picture of grace. Well, mercy is especially associated with men in their misery. Relief. A, a, a pullback from punishment that we deserve. And so Jones would say even further, he would say mercy is pity plus the action 
to relieve. You know you have mercy when someone has wronged you and they're in your power. Someone has wronged you. Again, it might be as simple as a waiter who gets the order wrong. That's so annoying, isn't it? It might be someone who's in a little more of a hurry than you are to either get home from work or to get to work, and so they cut you off. You might get placed on hold, and that company doesn't even have good music. <laughs> so you, you've called them too. So there may be a problem with your reservation, or you may show up and your room's not clean, or you may have been lied to by someone that you love and someone that you need to trust. And then the person comes back on the phone, or you see the waiter who comes back, or, or whatever the situation is, they're in your power. What is your attitude towards them then? How frustrated are you? Especially when no one's looking. Are you vindictive? Or are you able to show mercy? Are you able to forgive? We're going to see that to forgive, we need to be repentant. We're going to see that to truly repent, we must realize that we deserve punishment and yet given forgiveness. And that that joy, that joy of actually knowing you've been forgiven, you've been spared of something you totally deserve, compels you to forgive others. Christ says, blessed are you if you can show that kind of mercy, for then you will receive mercy. So then the question arises, and it may be, the bigger dilemma in this passage, does that mean that God only forgives me on the condition that I forgive others? It sort of seems like it says that here in our text. We prayed it in the Lord's Prayer, forgive my debts as I forgive my debtors, or forgive my trespasses as I forgive those who trespass against me. It's in the parable of the steward in Matthew 18, that great passage, you perhaps know it, where there's the, uh, a ruler, a lord of a region, and he has a steward who's entrusted with much care, and, and that steward has an incredible debt. He owes him 10,000 talents. A talent is a year's or 20 years wage for a common laborer. So if you call that 15 bucks an hour, that's $60 billion that this steward owes the Lord. And he asks to be forgiven that debt. And this Lord forgives him. You know the story. The steward heads home, and there's one of his servants that owes him 100 denarii. A denarii is one day's wage. So at that same $15 an hour, it's between nine and $10,000. That's a debt most people can pay back. And the steward chokes him. Chokes him. And as he's choking him, the servant says exactly the same words that the steward said to the Lord to beg for forgiveness. But the steward has no forgiveness. And so when the Lord hears of that, he's thrown in jail. And then the passage ends with this. Matthew chapter 18, 35. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brothers from your heart. So then does it mean that God only forgives if we forgive? 
Well, certainly not, for several reasons. The first reason was in the quote on the outside of your bulletin, speaking about our mercy and our ability to forgive and speaking about God's ability to forgive are two totally different things. God's forgiveness is absolute, and ours is quite a bit more shallow. The other reason why that can't be the case is if it was the case, no one would be saved because no one can follow that strict little interpretation. You probably don't even remember all the times that you were wrong that may be happening so often or the times that you're sinning against other people. Another even more significant reason is when you think about it, there's no such thing of the gospel then. There's no gospel. You're not saved by grace through faith if it's dependent upon your ability and how you react to people who sin against you. Those glorious passages that tell us that while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us, they would be rendered meaningless. And so with that, we realize that the principle that no scripture can be interpreted correctly to contradict other scriptures. And so we say, well, then how do we reconcile this? Well, the dilemma, if you felt there was a dilemma, or if I just created one for you, that dilemma is solved completely when you realize that to be truly forgiven, you must be truly repentant. To be forgiven, you must be repentant. And now you can see why the steward in Matthew 18 was thrown in jail by the Lord. Because he wasn't repentant. He had just had an 80 or $60 billion debt lifted. And he's going to fuss about nine grand? I mean, he shouldn't have choked them. It's crazy. We do that all the time in our own lives, don't we? We think about the things that God has forgiven us. All the things that we've done, all the things we've left undone. And then we find that at times we're quite ready to choke others who have wronged us. And if that's not a hard enough challenge or example to look at, then you have Christ on the cross, falsely accused. He's absolutely perfect, never having sinned, still being punished, calling out to the Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Are you merciful that way? Do you recognize when you're wronged by people that they know not what they do? They're controlled by someone else, by something else, by their sinful nature. Christ challenges us to have mercy, to have pity. When we're wronged at work or, or at home or by a neighbor, where is our heart? Do we have pity? Is there joy? This is an opportunity to forgive them because we've been forgiven. Now, that doesn't mean that there, there may not be times where as parents or as spouses or as citizens or, or, or as workers, that, that it's not that we're not called to hold children accountable for things. But are we angry? And why? Are we vindictive? Are we full of spite? Or can we find joy? Even if we have to hold someone accountable, can we do that with pity? Having seen the horror of our own sin, having been surprised by a God 
who would choose to clean us, to clothe us, to love us as his own children. He's aware that we're unworthy. And he's made us worthy. We're amazed at his grace. That, that being fully repentant, we're now able to show mercy to others. Again, these are others who are trapped in bondage to sin, who are blinded by an enamor to the love of self, or who may be struggling in their own walk to be like Christ. They're just stumbling over an area that's just a little different than the area you stumble over. Blessed are the merciful. I'm not asking you really about your life, especially with reference to what you do or don't do. That's not the focus of this sermon. It's just simply this. Are you merciful? And if you find that you aren't really merciful, it might be because you've never really experienced forgiveness, not in a way that's overwhelmed you with joy. And that might be because you've never been truly repentant. This would be a great time to do that and to be overwhelmed by the amazing love of our Father who is so ready to show you mercy. And he tells us, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Would you pray with me? Father, we rejoice in this day. You've given us a day to rest and to worship. And so we're doing that, Lord, but help us. Father, we've sung of your mercy. We've prayed of your mercy. We've heard of your mercy. And now we're about to taste your mercy. Father, work that into our lives as we have need. For Jesus' sake.